Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let the Church of Jesus Christ say. Living with the end in mind. That's the theme of the preaching here for the next seven weeks living with the end in mind. What does it mean for us to live our lives with the end of all things in view? How does it change our present knowing what will take place in a day yet to come? My kids do not always get to stay up late enough to watch NBA or NCAA basketball games. And so they do this thing where in the morning after a game has been played, they come down before school and they ask if they can go online and check the scores. Fine. And if upon checking the scores, they find that the team they were hoping to win has in fact lost, No, excuse me. The team that they were hoping to win has, in fact, won. Then they ask if they can watch the game highlights, which they do so to see the great dunks, the long three-point shots, the in-your-face blocks, and so forth. Now, they know as they're watching, they already know how the game will turn out, and so they're watching the highlights detached from any anxiety or nervousness that comes when you watch a game live. They just get to relax and enjoy the highlights, even if the other team is looking like they're getting ahead. They know how the game ends. But... Conversely, if my kids check the score and they find that their preferred team is lost, then they don't even want to watch the highlights at all. No, they say, move on to the next game. I asked them about this one time. I said, well, don't you want to see the highlights? And my 10-year-old expressed it like this, what's the point? We already know they lost. Why bother watching and being disappointed the whole time? Living with the end in mind. What happens when you know how something is going to end? Does that change how you experience it in the present? Today we embark on a bit of an unusual sermon series in the weeks that follow Easter. Today marks the first week in a six-week uproarious romp through the really weird book 
at the end of the New Testament, called in English, Revelation. Singular, church. Singular. Revelation. Say it with me. Revelation. Let no Presbyterian say revelations, please. Though its literal name in Greek bears the much more exciting name, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Revelation. I found that Christians on the whole split like the Red Sea after Moses raised his staff on the book of Revelation. Some would prefer to never mention this book at all. It's too weird. It's too hyperbolic, too symbolic, too metaphysical. It's too supernaturally charged to really be any aid to our present day struggles. It's too confusing. Just leave it alone. Lock the door. Leave it at the end of the New Testament there. Fine. We'll go to it once in a while when we have a funeral service and we need something nice about the end of things. But besides that, leave it alone. On the other side of the divide are Christians who think that the book of Revelation is the cipher code to help understand every single current event in our world. They treat the book of Revelation like the Da Vinci Code. And they're trying to really get to the bottom of what all the numbers and the beasts and the four horsemen really mean. The book of Revelation isn't really confusing to these folks. It explains everything that's happening today. And to them, the book is a treasure trove of prophecy that is coming true right now. And for $99.95, you can have it all explained to you as well. For the next six weeks, church, we're going to wander through the book of Revelation, but we're going to chart a middle ground, a, a dry land path, if you will, through the raging torrent of this book. We're going to consider the book of Revelation from the subject living with the end in mind, and we're going to ask some questions about what the symbols and images in the book of Revelation might be telling us about how we are to live out our present lives in this strange in-between time between Christ's resurrection and his glorious return, between the creed's phrases, on the third day he rose again from the dead, and he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. How does glimpsing the end of things help us in the present? That is our chief question each week for the next several weeks as the lectionary pitches us some selections from the book of Revelation. If we know how the story ends, does that change our life today? So let's dive in. And today we start right at the beginning of the entire book. You can find your way to Revelation chapter 1 if you'd like. You can use the, uh, the uh, text that's printed in your order of worship. Now let me say right here at the very beginning... The book of Revelation was not originally written to hide or conceal or to make things confusing or weird. It's called in Greek an apocalypse, which literally means it's literally translated an unveiling. The intent of the book was to make some things about Jesus clear to the early post-resurrection, post-ascension, post-Pentecost church disciples who were enduring brutal state-sponsored persecution at the hands of Roman emperors, dealing with profound physical and spiritual suffering, the likes of which not one person here could imagine. 
what is in this book that could possibly speak a word of comfort or assurance to fellow Christians who locked the doors of their house, terrified that the Romans might find them and drag them into gladiator pits to face off against starving lions or bears. If we're going to understand anything about the book of Revelation, we need to start there. This book had an original audience, and it wasn't us. The situation faced by the first readers of this book is not our situation, and so we must exercise humility and caution before we leap too broadly into making bold interpretations of the book at all. Another thing we need to keep in mind before we jump in is that had there been a Library of Congress classification system in the first century, this book would not have been filed away under history or biography or poetry or philosophy. Its genre belongs to a very specific type of literature that was very, very popular during the time between the Old and New Testaments. It's a genre that was called apocalyptic literature. And in these writings, the authors would try to peel back, to reveal, to unveil the hidden, secret, spiritual realities taking place beyond the physical world that one could see. You can find examples of this in the book of Daniel, in lots of the book of Ezekiel, in parts of Zechariah. You can find it also in other books, not in the Old Testament, but that were written between the two testaments. And the chief difference between the book of Revelation and these other examples is that Revelation alone carries a triumphant, positive tone to it in the end. It paints a portrait of a chaotic spiritual world that is being ordered by the risen Christ and which will finally, in the end, be a new and everlasting life for God's creation. This is in contrast to the other greatest hits in the apocalyptic genre, which basically asserted that the world was doomed. Things were going to get way worse, and then the end would finally come. Now, if any of you have ever accidentally wandered into the book of Revelation, you know that the book is not uniformly uplifting. There are some frightening parts to it. But the final word of Revelation is the yearning cry of the church for Jesus to come and finish the work he started with his resurrection. And that sets it apart from its similar books. Okay, okay, preacher, fine, but what about the idea that Revelation is really just telling us the future and all we need to do is just decode the number of the beast and we'll know who the true Antichrist is and then we'll know when the rapture is going to take place and then we'll all get out of here like that. Well, I hate to burst your bubble if you were hoping for such an interpretation of this book, but that sort of view wasn't really part of the early church's understanding of this book, and it really fails to understand the reason that this book was written in the first place. In fact, this sort of literalist view of the book didn't really come to be until about the mid-1800s with a guy named John Darby. And while many, many Christians have bought into it, our earliest brothers and, Christian, brothers and sisters in Christian faith would scratch their heads and wonder how we ever got that from this book at all. 
Most Christians in most places of the world, for most of Christian history, understood that the vast majority of the book of Revelation was a symbolic portrait of events that had already taken place in the Roman Empire during the reign of Emperor Nero and Domitian. The first readers of this book weren't looking for a book of predictions for the future. They were looking to understand why they were being harassed, assaulted, and executed for professing the name of the risen Christ. And the image of the Roman Empire of Caesar being this multi-headed, multi-horned beast that looked fearsome and frightening would have been abundantly helpful for them understanding their struggle. So if we're going to understand Revelation, let's be aware that most of the book was initially understood as describing events that had taken place or would take place in a little while. The time is near, the writer says in chapter 1, verse 3. The time is near. That said, we, we need to note also that some things in the book, such as God making his home among mortals and God creating a new heavens and a new earth, and wiping every tear away from every eye, and no more will there be mourning or crying or weeping or pain. These were clearly anticipated realities that still have not taken place. All right, let's get down to today's reading. Revelation 1, 4 to 8. I'm going to read it again here just so it's fresh in our minds. Let us listen to the book that we love. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us by our sins, from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Today, the Apostle John writes to the seven churches in Asia from exile on the island called Patmos. He does not write bland blog posts filled with all sorts of pseudo-pastoral nonsense. He doesn't write them a book with his smiling face on the cover with dazzling white teeth telling them how they can have their best life now. He writes them from his own exile and distress and turmoil. And from the very beginning of this book, he connects their experiences to the real presence of God, the one who is and who was and who is to come. He connects it to the presence of God's spirit who is always before God's throne. He connects it to the presence of the risen and ascended Jesus Christ who he names faithful witness, firstborn of the dead and ruler of the king's of the earth to a people who were suffering persecution at the hands of one of those kings of the earth to hear at the very beginning that even Caesar is accountable to the risen Christ is immensely comforting. From the very beginning, the writer names the ultimate reality that is always there despite every possible political situation the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is always 
there, never displaced by our warfare or greed or hostility, never to be unraveled by our injustice and terror and suffering, never to be outmatched by our violence and our hatred. God is always present, always near, verses 5 and 6, always the one who loves us and freed us and fashions us into a kingdom who has ordained each one of us priests in that kingdom that we might lead the entire world in songs of glory and praise. Today is the second Sunday of Easter. Christ is risen. Death has been overthrown, and the risen Christ says, Peace be with you. The risen Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first letter and the last letter. I am the living one. We know how our story will end. It's the second Sunday of Easter. It's a good Sunday to remember that at the center of our praise and our worship and our singing and our praying is Jesus, who is named the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Every eye will see him, our text says today, even those who pierced him. We know how our story will end. Like my kids watching the highlights of the basketball game for which they already know the ending, we are participating in the story of this world already aware of what the end will be. Like my kids, we are freed, therefore, to participate freely without fear or anxiety. For even though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler. We know how this story will end despite all the evidence to the contrary, despite all the many ways the multi-headed beasts of our day seem to rampage through every nook and cranny of our existence. We know who stands at the end. We know who is the real living one. We know who holds the keys to death and hell. The question for us is not what will happen. The question is how will knowing that change who we are today? How does knowing that behind and beneath the stories of pain and suffering and betrayal and agony, there is a deeper story of redemption and resurrection and restoration being narrated? How does that change who we are right now? How does that change how we are raising our kids or interacting with our neighbors? How does that change how we practice reconciliation with those whom we have been estranged from? How does knowing that at the end of all things, God will wipe the tears away from every eye change who we are right now in the present? I believe that the book of Revelation was written not to a triumphant church enjoying blessings and joy, but to a suffering church 
in the first century, beset by struggle on all sides, a church who began to wonder if the resurrection of Jesus meant anything in the face of terror and persecution, a church who 60 years after Thomas saw the risen Christ was once again huddled in a locked room out of fear, hoping that Jesus would show up and breathe his peace on them again. One of the words that is repeated throughout this book is called is the word endurance. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. The writer of this book will say twice. This, I believe, is the point of the book and one of the reasons why I think it's beneficial for us to open our hearts to it for the next few weeks. Endurance, stamina, perseverance, long-suffering, patience. The readers of Revelation were taken behind the scenes of this world that they knew, and they were given glimpses of what was taking place beyond the limits of human comprehension. And the glimpses they were given inspired them at a time of distress to keep the faith from one generation to the next, to continue practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of the world around them, to be ambassadors of God proclaiming the news that God was reconciling everything in Jesus Christ. And today we are invited to cultivate that sort of endurance, that sort of vision. The witness of John's vision and revelation is not a rose-tinged one of the world that pretends the world's actually good all the time and that no one is really, really suffering that badly. This book is not dismissive of suffering as if It is not painful or difficult. I look around this room today and I see so many who have brought with them into these pews profound suffering. I see people who have brought with them medical suffering, tragic loss. I see people who have brought deep doubts and wonders. What does Christian faith do to alleviate this deep longing I have for my spouse? my friend, for my child. I I know that there are stories we carry with us here, and we, we see in the lives of the first readers of this book, brothers and sisters, people who in their own way were asking similar questions. The book does not dismiss human suffering, but rather the vision of Revelation says there will come an end to it. The days of war and violence are numbered. There will be an end to human sorrow and strife. Societal injustice and prejudice is finally going to be chased away forever. Every tear wiped away. Death, no more. Mourning and weeping, no more. All things made new. That is the story that is being told by the one who was raised from the dead. That is the story that was told in the locked room as Thomas found himself confronted with the end of the story made flesh and declared my Lord and my God. That is the story and the story alone which can fuel our own patient endurance and our commitment to not sit in a locked room, but instead practice resurrection right here in downtown Flint to allow the good news of what God is yet to do to spill out into our everyday actions. 
Today on the second Sunday of Easter, we find ourselves reminded that the resurrection story of God is being written right now, even while the world still feels terror-filled. We are not expecting the end of that story to come in our lifetime or in the next generation. But with all the saints of the past 2,000 years, we will continue as a church to rehearse its ending through our acts of mercy, our radical acts of forgiveness and love, passing on to our children and our grandchildren the truth that abides forever. Christ is risen. Amen.